I would like to be remembered for somebody who, for better or worse... Alrighty. So Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. The book Bottle Lightning. I, I got it immediately when I saw on LinkedIn and um, I read it that night. Yeah. That's what you said. I really, that's, it's, it's hard to get a higher praise than that from a reader. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not that it's an easy read either. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of different places they go to and a lot to keep track of. Right. It's one reason why I put the the list of characters in the beginning and mm. also why I have a map, particularly for readers who aren't familiar with Japan or mm. Northeast Asia. I thought it might be helpful. You know, there's a lot of Japanese names, mm. right? And um yeah, could could people could who aren't familiar with Japan could lose track of that, for example easy well you know i appreciated the little things like let, let me just gush about the book for for a second here like i said not <laughs> that it's an easy read but um uh it was so riveting like the first scene is a motorcycle chase and i'm not going to give away any spoilers but i mean you have like the freeway exits for the the freeway in japan uh you have like little things like i i picked up taniguchi the detective who has a bad ear and he does judo yes and I thought, oh, he's probably got cauliflower ear from judo. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, okay, that's the martial artist in Mark. And then the the details, the BMW, the even the little relationship stuff, like Mayumi says different things. No spoilers once again, but Mayumi says different things that makes Torn uncomfortable. He's like, where did she learn that? You know? Yeah, exactly. So, so. <laughs> exactly didn't want to dig too deeply into that right <laughs> or at least he didn't <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so and and so i can also see because i've i've led a very what would i say um fun complicated life i can see you have a life a lot of life experience and um uh the there it's a trite question but how much of torn is Mark and how much of Mark is torn or is there places where he takes a total departure from you or? Well, so yeah, it's an excellent question. And um, there's a, uh, an English author, I think from the 19th century um, who PD James is, is her name. And she has one of my favorite quotes or made one of my favorite quotes, which is something to the effect that all fiction is autobiographical and, much autobiography is fiction, which I, I, I find it funny, but also really true. And one of the axioms um, in writing is to, um, I ho hope I'm using that word right, but to, to, to write what you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had this character in, in mind um, and, and it was based on me. Um, it was based on an international lawyer um, who was running the Tokyo office of a global firm. Uh, and, uh, but um, uh, it, over time, it, it, it morphed the more I, th I, I thought about it as the, it interacted, that character interacted, interacted with the other, other characters. And um, my son's mother is Japanese. And so he's biracial. And so I, I started thinking about that angle 
Um, and so over time, he morphed into something that was different, which is a good thing because it gives you more room to explore that character. Um, but the short answer to your question is um, a lot of me went into Torn. There's no doubt about it. Cool, cool. Yeah, he's a very, very likable character. And who do you think would play Torn in the movie? And I've got an idea, but I don't want to, like, poison the well. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good it's a really good question. And I, I've thought about it because I've had I've actually had some um, knocking on the door from studios and, and none of it's gone um, anywhere yet. Um, but uh, still working on it, the 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 writers and actors strike sort of mm. gotten away, uh, for a few months, but maybe. Now that that's getting resolved, um, things will move forward. We'll, we'll see. But um, the one one option is that guy from Crazy Rich Asians who played the groom, okay. um, who, is, who is now older. Mm. Um, I think he could be more age appropriate. But the guy I I was, Keanu Reeves, oh. I, I also thought of, but he may be too, too senior at this point um because he's my age i think he's like 61 okay. or 62 but but he's definitely an option because he has that you know that look i think yeah um and then um i don't know if you're a fan of the new hawaii 50 um mm. but the new hawaii 50 has a a biracial character in it who was the son of a mafioso and then he basically flipped and became a good guy and Okay. And he, he was, ha I, for, I forget the actor's name, but he was having a relationship with um, one of the female police officers. Anyway, that guy really looks the part. And he's also actually a, a pretty good actor and he could do the action. So th there are a lot of, uh, of options, but that's one part of the uh, production that I would want to be involved in is who, mm. how, who you know uh who who was cast in that role i would like it to be an actual biracial person but mm -hmm. um if it were keanu reeves that would not be the end of the world <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's funny because i had written down i don't know if you can see it oh it's blurry i'd written down keanu reeves yeah yeah that was one, one of the people who sort of popped into my head and um but yeah i, I like that question because i like thinking about um what it would look like on the big screen i think there's a lot of different scenes in it that are very cinematic and mm. for me tokyo was actually one of the characters in the book you know oh, yeah. the, the city is, yes. is a living entity and so showcasing the city which i don't know when you first went came came to japan but i first visited tokyo in 1978 and it was a very very different place and yeah. and the way you know, the, the wonderful city that we all know and love. It wasn't that then. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I would really like to see that showcased. And I tried to write the book in a sort of a cinematic way that mm -hmm. showcased some of that. Mm -hmm. No, that's funny because I thought of Keanu Reeves and, uh, but I didn't pick up on Tokyo being a character, even though, I mean, it's like a huge character, but I thought of Keanu Reeves because, the scene in John Wick where he's on the motorcycle. Yes. And yeah. he's good with weapons. In fact, he developed a, a technique for unchambering a clip that is now used in competition shooting. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, I mean, he's that good. And he's, you know, he did the Kung Fu for for uh, Matrix and everything. So yeah, right. He's yeah, got right. full package, but, but um, boy. Um, but but then, and not a knock on Keanu Reeves, but people might see it as a John Wick character. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, Although he's, diver- he's diverse enough, you know, he might have to shave his beard or trim his beard in a different way or mm-hmm. and do something with his hair, but Mm-hmm. You know, his career is diverse enough. I think he could get away oh. with it. Well, I mean, anybody who can go from like, you know, what um, comedy to uh, romance to action, you yes. know, <laughs> just he, he can do it. He's one of those very versatile actors. So and um, who would play? Do you have any idea for like Saya or Mayumi or Yukie or anybody? Yeah, so um that's the 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 hardest person to cast would be the and the most would be Mayumi, who I think is the most interesting character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't really know. I think I would have to do a deep dive uh, into who is you know currently mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, acting in Japan. I I I don't mind taking you know. I should be so lucky as to have it made into a movie at all, but an, an unknown is just, we have to find the right person to play that, that character. Mm-hmm. Um, there, the, again, this woman, I actually think she's Korean American on Hawaii Five O, could play mm-hmm. one of the characters could play either um, Yukie um, or Kiwako. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's, quite good as well but the mayumi character would be challenging also the children finding casting that could be interesting yeah yeah now taking a little different twist on this in a movie about your life who would play you well that's 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 a really good question and not not pierce, to be on the spot but <laughs> pierce brodnan brosnan perfect <laughs> A younger, a younger Pierce. I mean, not not that there's anything wrong. I think he's ten years older than I am. So, but maybe that's perfect. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And keep keep kind of going on this. Like, if you had a magic wand type of world here, what songs do you hear when you think of the soundtrack? Oh, you know, I think of uh, uh, well, you don't know, but I think of songs that work well on a motorcycle and. Mm-hmm. Uh, all motorcycles are different, but for the that BMW motorcycle, the, the the way the acoustics of the motorcycle work with the the fairing and the speakers in the back and the speakers in the front, certain mm. songs uh, work really well with it, and certain songs don't. Mm. And uh, the songs that you think would work well don't necessarily work well, and some that you think wouldn't work well do work well. But it would be a a very eclectic soundtrack and it, i think would include um what is it led zeppelin's mm. um what's it called uh foggy mountain top or something like that um which is a, a wonderful song you know gorillas feel good ink um you know uh i i'm a fan of macklemore there are several songs of his imagine dragons there are several songs from there mm-hmm. uh one of my favorite songs that I've really over the years grown to love is um, uh, uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want, uh, mm-hmm. which musically and lyrically is just 
just a brilliant song. Um, that would be like Torn's theme. Yeah, it could be exa that, exactly. Actually, I really like that. That would be his theme. But there's also like um, something brassy, like um, from uh, Chicago, you know, because uh, they don't know what time it is or, hmm. or 20, what is it, 24 to 5 or something like that. I mean, yeah. there's so many, you know, they've got so many iconic songs. Uh, but it would be a very eclectic, mm. in my mind, um, soundtrack. And, and a lot of it would revolve around the motorcycle, mm -hmm. uh, at least in my mind. Or, or I should, let me put it this way. A lot of it comes from all the time I enjoyed listening to music on a motorcycle. And it, particularly driving around Japan. And Japan is the, the perfect country for driving in a motorcycle because there's so much different, so many different types of roads, so many different types of terrain. All the roads are very well maintained, very safe. People pay attention to you. There's lots of windy roads, lots of, you know, mountain roads, lots of coast coastal roads. So it's just a perfect place for that. And I spent so much time riding and listening to music. And the thing about that motorcycle is it's so well designed. When you accelerate, because the engine gets louder, the music automatically, the volume goes up. Mm. And and that was very dangerous feature because when you were listening to something you really liked and you came to a crescendo in the music, <laughs> your instinct is to pump it up. So you speed up. Yeah. And so you're feeling ecstatic. And the last thing, you know, you don't want to be, you want to feel, you want to be maintaining sort of Zen like presence when driving a motorcycle. And um, you, you don't want to be feeling emotion essentially, if you want to drive safely. <laughs> <laughs> no, as, as, I, I grew up on dirt bikes, so not much on the freeway. And as I got older, I got into cars. I had a BMW 540, which is a fantastic car. And when you mentioned acoustics, like just turn the stereo off and listen to the car. I mean, yeah, that's right. as well, right? So they BMW does so many things so well. Which I used to do a lot, actually, and particularly when running around, you know, the circuit there on the expressway at night, which I used to do sometimes after work. Like you say, just turn off the, the music. And I loved listening um, as I changed gears, mm. you know, and then also the sounds of the city. And and if you go out late at night, you've got the Gudetto Zoku running around. And, yeah. and, you know, I was in my late 40s and 50s. I was sort of way, you know, not 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 hanging out with an age appropriate crowd um, <laughs> when, when I was, you know, driving around. But it was it was a lot of fun to see oh, yeah. all these different cars and motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, you know, movies like Tokyo Drift or, or games like, um, what was that one? Uh, there was an old Nintendo game that was where you would drive on the Shuto. Oh, and, I don't know that game. Oh, man. A, a friend of mine lent me his Nintendo years ago, like in the nine. I came here in 1990. And in the late 90s, a friend, I want to say it was a Nintendo and he lent that to me and you could, you get your car and when you win races, you earn money, you win money and you can use that money to upgrade your car. So, and then you can go on the shoot. Oh, or, nice. Oh, oh nice. fantastic. And then they had this memory card. It was like an SD card, but much thicker. Stick that in the console and then you, you could save your, your cars. Oh, I see. So, and, and I think that's why like so many games and movies are based on Tokyo freeways because they're like you said they're so well maintained yeah they're they're great they're I love driving on and know. intricate mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. 
and and think about what we did before the advent of the Nobby, right? You had oh, to yeah. pull out the map, and yep. you know, if you missed your turn off, then it was like a big hassle to get back and figure out how do you get back on. And oh, yeah, I mean, the the thing is just a labyrinth, right? It was, it's and, incredible. And um, let's see, I do remember the map, and I, I forget which map it was, but you would go to the end of a, a page. Like you'd be on the Kampachi, the the Ring Road Eight that goes around Tokyo. You'd be in the Kampachi, and you get to like a certain road, and then you'd have to go. And on the corner, it would say, "Go to page A twenty six. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I I remember. Yes, yes. That's exactly right. right? I remember that. And then you're like, "What the right?" right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they had these um, Nukemichi maps. Right. So when you go on vacation and you drive out to like Yamanashi or something, there were these maps that you could buy. And Nukemichi just means what, um, like side road or something. Shortcut. Shortcut. Yeah, you're right. Shortcut. And so you'd be on the freeway and you would see they have these signs that say, okay, the next five kilometers are going to, you know, they're red. So there's going to be a, a traffic jam. So you pull out the Nukemichi map and you would see, okay, there's a side road or a service road that goes along here. And I can get off there and follow that and bypass this uh, traffic jam. Those were great. Those yeah, were great. I used to pour over those maps because I, I, I went down to um, uh, Shikoku and and Kyushu, and I went up to Tohoku, mm. and I came. I went up on the Pacific side and came down Japan, Sea of Japan side, and um, you know to put together the whole itinerary. I would just pour over those maps and I'd be copying pages, you know, and, and you're right. They, they, they would tell you like on weekends, for example, which roads tended to crowd up where, um, of course now the Navi does all that for you in real time. Yeah. Um, but that was sort of one of the fun things about, you know, preparing for a touring trip mm. was pouring over those maps. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. Now I, I do kind of wish I rode motorcycles cause I have a couple friends who have them. And, uh, one guy is a, a motorcycle rider and a drone pilot. So he'll go, you know, out to the country, fly the drone and then come back. And, uh, the, those two seem to go together pretty nice. Now shifting gears here about M&A, your life in M&A, what is, what's the thrill of M&A and for non-lawyers mergers and acquisitions. So the, the 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 thrill of it is you're um, if you're in if you're particularly if you're running the deal I think as a, a junior associate or a legal assistant there's less thrill depending on what <laughs> your assignment is because yeah. you're just you're sort of you know just a cog and depending on you know how good your boss is there they may be not giving you a lot of information about the rest of the deal. And you're sort of in the dark about what role, you know, you, what the importance or lack thereof of your role and, and its impact on the entire deal. But if you're actually running the deal, mm-hmm. then you're, you're sort of uh, you feel like a, an orchestra conductor mm-hmm. um, because you're, you're essentially buying another business um, or, in some cases, several businesses uh, or selling it on mm-hmm. behalf of, of a client. I enjoyed being on the buy side 
um, more because then that gives you an opportunity to really learn about a, another business. And so, so what I mean by being a conductor is you, you have to, the first thing to do is to look at the, the business and figure out what the issues are. And so, you know, what's the potential liability, um, say for product liability, uh, what are their insurance claims? You know, what intellectual property issues do they have that are patent related or copyright related? It's what trademark issues do they have? You know, what contracts do they have with suppliers? So you're looking at the whole company from a holistic um, perspective and uh, trying to um, tell the client, you know, what what are where are the risks and how can you minimize the risks? And then that will help you once you know what the company is. It helps you negotiate, if necessary, um, a better deal from the for the client that, that than they might have negotiated themselves. But if it's a cross border deal now overlaid on those legal issues, it's mm. not just the legal issues in one country or one state, but you 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 start dealing with the legal issues across several countries, and then you've got the language issues, and then as you know the cultural issues, mm. and you know Japan and the U.S. are so different essentially. You've got a non-Judeo uh, Christian culture butting heads with a Judeo Christian culture, and they're so different, right? Yeah. Even now, right? Yeah. And um, so I found that whole, you know, and then the time zones, and and you end up having teams who are working on due diligence or some ish, some agreement in in China, in India, in Australia, in the U.S., Japan, you know, France. And sort of orchestrating all that and actually getting it moving in the right direction, which is a little like herding cats, I just found fascinating. <laughs> exactly. No, that. And um, so I do mostly I do. Uh, let's see. Right out of law school, I went into the automotive sector and then um, was going to go into IP. I, I had done humanities as an undergrad degree, but I was very fascinated by IP. And so I was actually either thinking of going to get the 30 credits so I could sit for the patent bar as well, because it was so fascinating. And then um, that was 2007, 2008. We all know what happened with the housing market, which affected yeah. the automotive market, which affected my job. And um, I got a call from a friend who said, have you ever done e-discovery? I said, I don't know, but I need a job. And he said, well, we have a Japanese client with a bunch of documents to go through. And so uh, I got involved in that and I'm still doing it. And uh, it's fascinating because, and this leads into a question for you is it's fascinating because I get to work on things. And I've said this on my other channels, other interviews that you see something before it gets in the news. And so when it comes up, I just kind of grin, you know, my, my friends say, Hey, did you hear about this, this or that? I just, wow, that's interesting. Have you ever had that situation and how do you deal with it? Yeah, well, confidentiality is paramount, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of beat into us from a, um, uh, uh, you know, from the time we were a junior associate and the, the training just got more intense, mm -hmm. you know, over the years because insider trading became um, such mm -hmm. a serious issue. From the time I became a lawyer in 1988, um, it really started. Uh, and then in Japan in the 90s, um, it became a serious issue as well so and particularly when you're dealing with publicly traded companies oh, yeah. um, but also privately traded companies uh, or privately owned companies 
you know, that confidentiality is very important there because of the, like you say, the IP issues or mm-hmm. could have an impact on litigation or something like that. Um, and so it was always something that um, that I was very sensitive to. I never uh, traded in in publicly mm-hmm. traded stock, for example, because or securities because I didn't want to be worried about that issue. And then um, arbitration in the context of uh, mergers and acquisitions and litigation would pop up, and 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 there too. Um, confidentiality is very important. And as you know, depending on what's happening in the litigation or arbitration, that can move the stock price. And um, Mm. so I remember um, when I was working both in in Tokyo and in New York, there were investment banks in our building. And so, uh, well, like, um, you know, Izumi Garden, um, there used yeah. to be at least, at least three in there, for example. Um, so in the elevator, you know, I, mm. I, I it was very important um, to um, be careful what you were talking about, right? And and you know, in that elevator, in that in that office building, you've got the giant shuttle air elevators, right? I mean, yeah. it holds what fifty people or something, yeah. Right? And it's changed to the yeah, it's huge. You know, the, the smaller elevators and you never know who's there and who speaks English and who doesn't. And, yeah. you know, so uh, yeah, it's just something you have to be aware of all, all the time. And then there are actually, there were actually times where uh, we were told, I remember that, um, you know, people could be listening into your conversations, even outside using some type of electronic device. And so be careful and don't talk on your cell phone and, and things like that. I know some of that shows up in the book as well, mm-hmm. um, but that's yeah. where I started becoming sensitive to that. And and then we actually had some clients who suffered um, from trade secret misappropriation, which in a really in really sort of cloak and dagger kind of ways, where employees actually stole, um, you know, in one case, um, software that had been developed, newly developed, and they stole the source code and sold it. And in another case, they actually removed a bacteria that had been engineered by our client um, and had given them a huge advantage in the, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And they stole the bacteria and put it, um, they, were, they were all checked every day when they left the, the plant, but wow. they put it in like this little plastic bag in their bra. Oh, and, and and took it out that way so you know you hear enough of this you know over the years to realize that it's actually not just in the movies or rather i should say there's a reason it's in the movies and that's because it happens in real life right Mm -hmm. yeah and there's there's funny things in movies so i i was a i still am a big fan of fight club and they said that uh when they filmed the movie and tyler durden gives the uh formula for napalm they got a lot of complaints. They said, that's, that's not the right formula. And the director said, well, we're not going to give the real formula. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You think I'm crazy. <laughs> that's a brilliant movie. Oh, it's amazing. And I, I love, I love movies with a twist like um, sixth sense and, you know, fight club. And um, I've heard rumors of part two. I don't know how you would do it because they blew everything up and. Uh, well, he survived. So may, maybe, but that author is a very 
has yeah. some has written some other really my son was a huge fan of that author um mm -hmm. wrote some other really interesting books i think one of them was lullaby and that was a really disturbing <laughs> disturbing book but but fun you know it was like fight club with that whole dysfunction about you know going to those um self-help meetings and the mm. right that he meets that well i mean that that is just brilliant to yeah. think of them. I mean, that that scene where he's yelling, he's having the, I guess the woman becomes his girlfriend, but he's, I, I, spoiler alert, um, he's uh, having the shouting match with her because oh. she's she's moving in on his monopoly, right? Marla Singer. What's that? Marla Singer. Marla, Marla. The tourist. <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. I had no idea she wasn't American. Her accent was so good. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she's. I think she's Australian. Well, you know that guy who played House, the 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 yeah, it, that guy's English. I didn't know he was English until I you interviewed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Well, it it is interesting because he has a very good and and the thing, and I I always explain to my Japanese friends is that, I mean, almost anybody can play an American. Because we're right. used to having so many accents. I mean, depending on where you go in the States, there's people from different countries everywhere. So, right. you know, and Hugh Laurie had a great accent in house. And um, I didn't realize it until I saw him on Friends. He has a cameo. Oh, interesting. And he uses his real accent. And then when he does his um, interviews, he uses his real accent. And they say, you know, oh, he was 101 Dalmatians is one of the bad guys when he was young. <laughs> <laughs> now, just really quick, we got like nine minutes to go, but sure. I, or I didn't interview. I, I auditioned for a British actor part. Uh, I have a, a, a friend who's an agent and every once in a while, like once a year, he'll call me up and say, hey, I need you to go to an audition. And I always think like, you know, I'm the, you know, they got a seven and they need a five to make the seven look like a 10. So they bring right. me, <laughs> but I interviewed for a part as a, as that a... is harsh. That is so <laughs> harsh. Hey, we're, we're our own worst critics. Right. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I auditioned next to a British guy and they said, okay, you're going to read this in a British accent. I said, all right, then. And I start talking and then the guy looks at me kind of funny. And afterward he goes, I know you're not British. And I said, well, you can tell, and I can tell but the director can't tell. Right. Because, right. you know, Japanese director, they, and I, I, you know, people can't tell the difference between a, you know, British, Australian, American, Canadian accent. So, yeah. Right. So the thrill of MA, knowing something before it gets in the news, what does the news get wrong? About him? Almost everything. Well, <laughs> no, I remember, I remember um, I had, you know, you know how partners can be. Um, I remember, I had a, there's a senior litigation partner in New York that I was working with and we were working on um, a litigation matter. You know, when I was junior back in the day, they let you rotate through different departments, which was really great for your career. And uh, there was some big litigation in, in the news and um, I was doing probably discovery. Mm -hmm. And I remember him calling us all into the room course there was no e-discovery e then calling us into the room and and saying okay now, now no talking to the press and he said over the years i have realized that the press struggles with the facts and that that statement that just like deadpan you know total just 
it has always stuck with me. And the other thing he says, says said was, you got to realize the press only gets things about half right 50% of the time. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so essentially they're getting 25% of it right. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And and I think it's really true. And, and there are a variety of reasons for that. You know, they have deadlines. Yeah. They, there's only so much space they have. Uh, you know, they're rushing to, to get the scoop. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's, I'm not necessarily faulting the, the press, although the one could take that position. But that's that's just the way it is. I've and yeah. I've been I've been interviewed and uh, as a lawyer and quoted and and I'll read the they'll ask me to confirm the quote. I'll confirm the quote. It'll come out and then it'll be wrong. And, you know, some editor upstream edited it. Right. And, and so anyway, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Last question, um, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. Last question. Uh, so you're, you know, lawyer, angler, author. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Um, I I would like to be remembered uh, for somebody who, for better or worse, followed their heart and decided to be. Um, engage in adventure. I mean, I, I wanted to go someplace outside of the U S as a teenager and signed up as an exchange student. And that took me to Japan. And I saw my father do a murder trial and mm. I wanted, decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And then, but when mm. I got to Japan, people said, Oh, you need to do international law. And, and that took me to New York. And, and then eventually I practiced in New York and eventually I ended up back in Japan and, and so th- my whole life has just been one big I- adventure. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's true with the fishing as well. And I just have no complaints about that. But if I hadn't taken some risks along the mm-hmm. way that were necess- not necessarily the best from a business plan standpoint, for example, my life would not nearly have been um, as rich as it has been today. That's that's great to hear, you know. Um it kind of follows the hero's journey. Have you studied Joseph Campbell at all? Yeah, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> as, as an author, I mean, that's kind of a dumb question, but like, <laughs> no, but no, but I mean, I, I was a huge fan of his 30 years ago when I hmm. became very interested in um, religious history. Okay, and, and it was only later when I started writing that I realized his hero's journey was a big part of sort of the writing uh, culture. Mm-hmm. My entree was through uh, George Lucas. Or Luke Skywalker, yeah, right. And the whole oh, that's interesting, and and that's why Star Wars worked. I mean, that's you know he's got the call to adventure. You know, come with me to Alderaan, the refusal yeah. to call. Like I got to stay here on the moisture farm. And then he's got the allies, the enemies, the you know the um, exactly. return home. And you, know, and you know the whole force thing comes from key, right? Did you know? I figured this out recently. You know, it's hard for people who haven't studied Japanese to pronounced Japanese, that the word Jedi comes from Jidai Geki. No way. No joke. Wow. No. The mispronunciation of Jidai became Jedi. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> was that was that Lucas who did that? I think so, yeah. You're a Jedi warrior. That totally makes sense, right? <laughs> oh my God. I was a huge fan of those Jidai Geki, those back in the day by the way mm-hmm. 
that helped with my Japanese to a certain extent. <laughs> well, I just watched a lot of TV. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. We're going to run out of time, so I'm going to say thank you, man. This has been great, and I, I could keep going forever, but I know you got stuff to do. Well, thank you, and let's catch up when I'm in Japan. I'd love to. Let's do it. Thanks, Mark. Take care, Tracy.